With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom by simply visiting www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate to make a difference today. Here on Reality Check Radio, it's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. I became an environmentalist at high school when I was very young. And I don't know what it is about being young, but you're sort of in a conflict with everything around you and you want to change the world. And you think that, I don't know, everything else, everything is wrong. That's how I felt. And I read, particularly I can remember, reading The Population Bomb, came out in 1968 by Paul Ehrlich, that said we were just overloading the planet with people. I read The Limits to Growth by the Club of Rome, and it was a computer model showing that the world demand for resources was growing geometrically and that obviously resources were finite and that even if you doubled, tripled, quadrupled the number of resources, eventually you'd run out. That came out in 1972. I read Blueprint for Survival. I'm thinking that was about the same time. It was put out by the magazine The Ecologist or The Journal about what we needed to do. I read Since Silent Spring by Rachel Carson, published in 1962, I believe, but I read it, of course, later than that, about how DDT, this new wonder compound, was not breaking down in the environment and bioaccumulating up the food chain to kill birds and how it was an environmental toxin. And I was firmly of the belief when I was 15 that we were either going to run out of resources or kill ourselves with poisons and pollution. And I committed myself to doing something about it. I was very fervent. I would never dream of owning a car I would only ride a bike everywhere, right through my university days. I rode a bike everywhere because I was an environmentalist and we were going to run out of petrol. I always felt a bit guilty in the university holidays because I would drive trucks, but I regarded it, and I enjoyed it, and I regarded that as an economic necessity and a sort of failed industry that would have to be replaced. I actually had a view that we needed to live somehow in little communes in harmony with nature without the benefits of industrialization. So this was in the 70s. I went off to university, which was very exciting to me, and I really wanted to be a molecular biologist because I just loved what Watson and Crick, I read of them cracking the DNA code, and I just imagined doing something like that. But I thought, no, I can't do that because to do so would be 
not to advance the saving of humanity from environmental catastrophe. And so I studied all the biological sciences I could. I did sort of multiple degrees, really, in botany and zoology and ecology. And on my last year at university, I got a job working for the New Zealand Forest Service. And we were looking at the regrowth on the West Coast of native forests after they'd been logged. And amazingly, with the scientists, we were just technicians working for the summer, we discovered that they were regenerating. But the scientists explained it didn't matter because this was politics and logging had to be stopped even though you could easily sustainably log a native forest. And I found myself working in the New Zealand Forest Service and there wasn't this enthusiasm or keenness to work. It was all who cares. And I could not stand it. It drove me nuts. And I became extremely dispirited because I thought, well, here I am working so hard at university to get a job. If I'm lucky, working for the New Zealand Forest Service where everyone seems to be miserable. So I read James Mitchener's book. I think it was called The Drifters, about these young people traveling around Europe. And I thought, that sounds like me. And I worked hard, saved my money, and I headed to London. And I ended up working on the North Sea oil rigs. And I just loved the technology. And it did affect me, because here we were pumping oil in the sea, deep, untold amounts of oil. And I thought, gosh, aren't human beings ingenious? At the same oh, at the same period of time, I traveled to the Eastern Bloc, and I so desperately wanted to see something better, particularly after working in the United Kingdom and seeing the class system and the working class being so distinct from the managerial class and to the truly rich. And here was we Kiwis able to travel across all those groups and not be pigeonholed. But when I went to the Eastern Bloc, it was like all those Reader's Digest articles that I'd read came true. It was horrific. I couldn't believe the cues just to eat and the absence of food and everyday products and how people would just hang out for things that we just take for granted. But what truly affected me was the fear. It's a funny thing about fear, you sort of feel it in people and it makes you fearful. But in the Eastern Bloc in 1981, everyone was scared, and they were scared of their government. And being a Kiwi, I just couldn't imagine that. We just make fun of our government, useless government. But these people were scared, and there were guns and barbed wire pointed at the people to keep them in. And I knew then there was something terribly wrong 
with communism and its brother, socialism, that they would do that to a people. And I'll never forget coming once through Checkpoint Charlie, clutching my New Zealand passport as this most wonderful gift that I had, that I could leave this prison where others would die trying to get through. I could just walk through. And I saw that American flag, and it was at that point that I understood what that flag meant. I came back to New Zealand and thought, I will study environmental science. I was still concerned about how we were caring for the planet. And I got a master's degree in environmental science. And I stayed on. I was sort of favoured. And I stayed on to research and teach. And the head of the department was my mentor. But there came an unease because I worked with high country farmers who are wonderful families who care for large chunks of New Zealand. And I was watching government departments try and take control of their lives and their land and the name of the environment. And everyone in the university was all for it because in the university they had the answers and the research. This was in the 80s. And I travelled to the West Coast once on a project where there was this man trying to farm, to have a farm. He was working as a road worker and trying to have a farm. And he had to keep shifting his house with his family in it because the river kept changing its course. And you'd step out of his house and fall into a swamp up to your knees. And he wanted to drain some of his swamp. And the Department of Conservation people had flown down from Wellington to tell him no, he couldn't. The reason being that the swamp was very endangered. Well, there was a limit of swamps. All the swamps had been drained. But of course, his place was entirely a swamp. And something didn't feel right to me about this this bossiness of government and giving power to the government. And I recall back to my time before the, when I went behind the Iron Curtain where the communist countries were environmental disasters because there was no private property and no one caring for their land or their resources. And I couldn't see how Doc could do a better job than a farmer looking after their patch of the planet because the farmer has an economic interest in it and a future interest in it and can do something about it whereas a bureaucracy never can or care. I became a little uneasy and I started to raise questions about not environmentalism but about our solutions because I realised wherever I looked for the environmental solutions it was always about let's have more government telling people what to do. And it wasn't obvious to me that that would improve things. In fact, 
I was pretty sure it would make it worse. And I started to see that private property was a wonderful thing that ensured that people cared for resources and looked after them. And that prices were amazing things for conserving resources. Because prices, more than anything, make you care for things because they're costly and expensive. But when things are free, we're wasteful of them. And governments distort those prices and make us wasteful. Whereas the free market puts a price on things and makes us care for them. Also incentivizes us to provide what people want. At the same time as giving us maximum freedom. So I was having all these thoughts in the 80s and I was starting to speak them out and I was starting to get stumped on by environmentalists. So I remember meeting the young Rod Donald who went on to become the leader of the Greens. And he wanted me to get involved in an environmental project to save a, a, a creek. And I was saying, well, what about the science of this? He said, I'm not worried about the science. And that seemed to me to be totally wrong. At this time, too, Rogenomics was occurring, and I was swept up in that about thinking about how best to run things. And it seemed to me that the free market was on track. And I read a wonderful book because I was struggling what science was. And I started to read Sir Karl Popper. And I read his logic of scientific discovery about how science works or should work. And how science works not by being true, but by being hypercritical and testing our knowledge against the real world by testing competing theories and getting rid of the bad ones and having a great humility towards what we think we know. Because always our knowledge is tentative, not certain of the scientific world, because even our best theories can be overturned or extended. And the way a scientist works is to test ideas through experiment or observation against reality and I realized that because we couldn't have certain knowledge government could never work because you couldn't have one truth running resources and what you wanted was a whole lot of experiments and an ability to wipe out those things that weren't going well and replace them with things that were and the government was the antithesis of this because government would always defend its actions against the obvious disaster that they are. But also that you could never tell whether a government was a success or not because it didn't have that simple device of a profit or a loss. And profit and a loss is all about caring for resources. Because if you're making a loss, you're consuming more resources than value you're producing. And if you're making a profit, you're actually making more value than the resources that you're consuming. It's a wonderful, wonderful system. And that profit and loss system makes those that own assets and the people who are successful work for us, the consumers. They've got to be mindful of what we want as compared to government. 
I could also see that when government got into bed with big business, it was a terrible thing. It was like a, well, it was fascism because you had the worst of all worlds. You had these companies who weren't subject to profit and loss. And you had governments who dictate to people and believe that they can run people's lives. So all this was fermenting around in my head in the 80s. And then I read Sir Karl Popper's book written here in New Zealand, The Open Society and Its Enemies. And it made me deeply, deeply sceptical of closed systems, tribal systems, if you will, as compared to open systems where we have rules and the law applying equally to everyone and therefore freedom. And that societies that were open to free speech, to individual autonomy, would be successful societies. And closed societies that had to follow a leader or a particular dictate could not succeed because that particular leader and that particular dictate, chances are, would be wrong. And so that was my evolution as an environmentalist. By the way, my environmentalist, my environmentalism came crashing down because I was cancelled. I didn't realise I was cancelled, but I was because our department, to fight off Rodronomics, decided in the 80s to use the treaty not because it was a good thing, right and true, but as a tool to oppose privatisation, rationalisation, resource development. And it ended up getting hooked because local iwi would come to this department and said, well, you've, if you're taking this on, you've got to get serious and get some Maori in the department. And before long, the department was having to in 1988, give observance to Maori spiritual values in a lecture room. And it was at that point that I walked out. Luckily, I was re-employed as an economist in another department. Meanwhile, I had been studying economics for some years as a critic because economists always had this optimistic view, or modern economists do, of the economy. And I was trying to work out why they were wrong. And in the process, I discovered they were right. Not the economists you read about in the newspaper. I'm meaning serious economists, proper economists, and understanding how society works. And there's a wonderful man who had the great fortune to meet who has passed away called Julian Simon. And he explained why all doomsdayers were wrong. Because he said, there is an unlimited resource. And it's the ultimate resource. And that resource is the human mind. And the human mind set free can create and make. And that a human being can create more than they consume. We're not like paramecium in a petri dish. We're not like some little animal contained in an enclosure. We're thinking, reasoning people. 
And so we don't overshoot as a population. Not if we live in an open society where we're free to create and to produce because we produce more than we consume. In a functioning society, which is a point. And so I became a free market person, but always committed to the environment. But I realized that the free market was the environment's best friend. Back when I was an environmentalist, there was talk of global cooling. I never took it much seriously. But then suddenly it switched to global warming. And I studied for a year in the United States and went to a conference when Al Gore had just written his book, Earth and the Balance, about global warming and the scare that it posed. And I don't know, it was a two or three day conference. And his book was, and the idea of global warming was thoroughly trashed by all the world's leading meteorologists and climatologists and physical scientists because it was wrong. There's no evidence for this, and there still isn't. That there's nothing untoward about the climate changing or the weather changing, it always has. And the rate of change is no different now to what it has been in the past. Yes, we know that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas, and that all things being equal, more carbon dioxide means the Earth gets a little warmer. But it's by how much? The alarmists have it that this carbon dioxide warms the planet up by a real, real, real lot. But the reality is it warms it up by very, very little. And the models that produce all those scary results, and the media pick up the scariest of the scariest results that even the modelers say won't happen, the modelers assume that carbon dioxide has this dramatic effect. There's absolutely no evidence for that. And there are funny things too. Like the Earth doesn't have a temperature. Each place has a temperature, and we measure some places. And it's almost, it's impossible to create an accurate record, even to a tenth of a degree. At least it was until 1979 when we could do that with satellites. But even that, we're using proxies to assess the temperature of the Earth. But even in that record, no sign of alarm. We're coming out of a little ice age, planet's warming. What would you expect? And of course, when it didn't warm for many, many years, the concern became climate change. And here we are, climate change. It's complete hokum built on a model that has never been accurate, that is just a bunch of assumptions running inside a computer. Research billions of dollars have poured into research, and to get a research project, you have to say, oh, I'll be studying climate change. And so all the studies work to where the money is because government money has so corrupted science, totally corrupted science. And big companies are in on it. 
because they realize they can knock out their competitors and work in partnership with government and earn favor with the government. Oh, they love it. They love, they love this. And yet, not a shred of evidence. But if you question it, oh, you uh, don't care for the planet. You don't care for future generations. You're a terrible person. By the way, all these glorious people have been making predictions. Every year, they get overturned. I mean, they'll make a prediction five years out, 10 years out, 20 years out. We've had them for 20 years, 30 years. All fallen flat. But they never change. And then you notice the people high up that are pushing this doesn't change their lifestyle. They fly around in jets, they have cars, they have big houses, they live a grand life. Well, all the while, impoverishing poor people, people on fixed and limited incomes, pensioners. Pensioners not being able to afford to adequately warm their little flat because of climate change. This is evil. So what's the attraction? It's power. It's all it is. It's a power grab. And everyone is a little bit in on it because that's where the money is and they don't look too deeply. And so here I am an environmentalist travelled all this distance and I find myself now being lectured by environmentalists about how I have to care for the planet and in a funny way I can hear myself talking to me from 50 years ago but there is a difference and the difference is I believe that back when I was at school and university, there was still a commitment to truth. Oh, there were pockets of it, like my environmental department, that had a political agenda. But even they would respond to an argument or a fact. But the people we're dealing with now don't even believe in facts or argument. They dismiss it, and they dismiss you and me because, well, you would say that because you're an old white privileged guy, and so you can't even have the debate. But then climate change is astonishing to me because it's become this huge industry out of just half a dozen climatologists who modelled stuff and everyone thought they were a joke back when they were doing that. And yet that idea has got root and has grown and we have people who don't know the first thing about physics, geology, temperature records, keeping temperature records, nothing. 
telling you what's what, and imposing dramatic costs and restrictions on our lives, and ultimately to control us. And all this while, I've been arguing with them. Over and over and again, I've read all the reports, I've analysed the models, I've spoken with experts, and I could go point by point by point by point by debate, and I could win every debate on the facts, but lose because it's just an idea that has this huge, powerful pull. I think we have to understand that what we're talking about now isn't climate change and what we should do, or environmentalism and what we should do, or the treaty and what we should do. The real question we need to be asking ourselves is whether we want to be living in a free world or an unfree one. Whether we want to be living in a world where we can debate and discuss, have our own ideas, change our ideas, debate and get on with our lives as we best see fit or whether there are ideas to be banned, speech to be banned, and their lives to be controlled. And that the actual topic, whether it be climate change, COVID, or whatever, isn't the issue. It's whether we're going to be citizens or subjects. You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Thank you for listening. Please send me a text, 2057, email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. Right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand and overseas, with governments constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To make sure you never miss the critical news and breaking stories you rely on, join the RCR mailing list today. Get connected now at realitycheck.radio forward slash email.